Hey guys, today we're going to continue our discussion of free will with the section in OPAR, Human Actions, Mental and Physical as Both Caused and Free. Stay tuned. Okay, so let's dive right in with a summary of what Leonard covers in this chapter. So Leonard Peikoff starts off by saying that, you know, we've looked at the primary choice to focus or not, but he says there are other choices that we make once we're in focus, and the secondary choices are choices. And so he starts out with mental choices, and it's once you've chosen to think, there's a whole bunch of further choices about what to think about and how to think about them. Part of what we see is that these choices are choices, that they're not necessitated by anything, even your choice to focus, and yet they're distinguishable from the primary choice in that you can ask about them, why did a person choose this? You can ask for a reason, but the key point Leonard makes is that the reason is not um, causally uh, deterministic. It's rather a man determines the reasons that will move him. It's that we select the reasons that will govern us in our secondary choices. The same principle, Leonard says, applies to our choices of actions. And there the choice we face is whether or not to act in accordance, act consistently with our values or not. And so our values from the objectivist perspective are not they don't force themselves on us. What we want doesn't make us go after what we want. We can contradict that. We can default on that either by evading what our values require uh, or by just not exercising the responsibility of thinking through what do my values require in this kind of case. So then Leonard moves on to a discussion of how causality, how this view of causality of giving reasons for your choices applies to the primary choice. And so we can give reasons for our secondary choices, but they're still choices. Those, the, the reasons aren't necessitating factors because we determine if those reasons are going to be operative. But for the primary choice, you can't ask for a reason why did a person choose to focus or not. It's he chose. And yet this is not a uh, this doesn't contradict the principle of causality according to objectivism because the principle of causality does not say that all cause and effect relationships are mechanistic. It says that an entity has to act in accordance with its nature. But when we're talking about consciousness and human consciousness, the nature of that is to choose. And so from the objectivist perspective, it's still true that... Um, the entity in the same circumstances has to act in the same way, but the same way is the choosing. It's that human nature, human identity is such that we must choose our level of awareness. We have to regulate that, but there's nothing determining the outcome of that choice except us, that that's what we're, as we're going to talk about, that's a causal primary. That's the starting point uh, of a causal process. It's not antecedent factors that determine that. And there's no reason from the law of cause and effect to say that there have to be antecedent factors determining a cause effect relationship. So the first thing I want to say is that this is, it's a good question to have in your mind of, okay, if I was writing OPAR, if I was, I was going to sit down and write a treatise on objectivism, would I have done this the same way? And this is certainly a section where I would not have written it the same way. And my point is not that I think Leonard did it wrong. My point is if I had been coming to this cold, I almost certainly 
would have treated secondary choices as kind of like a, you know, sub issue within the primary choice. So I'd been, hey, all right, there's a choice to focus. That's our starting point. And then by the way, to implement that, there's secondary choices. And then probably would have treated causality is a standalone issue. Like, well, how does this fit with causality? Because obviously some people say that causality is in contradiction to choice. And so the, the question I was thinking about is, well, all right, well, why does uh, Leonard Piga put them together? And I think my, my guess is that what's really going on here is that um, one of the things that is very deliberate in the way that he's approached this book is that he's tr- he, he's, he basically takes any polemics, any responding to alternative theories and critics, and for the most part, for any significant idea, is putting that at the end of chapters. And that what he's trying to give you is the philosophy as one would get it from reality, not counting on, well, first we have a bunch of errors and now objectivism is a response to these errors. It's no, how would you get it from reality? And so if you're thinking about a person actually thinking it through um, these sorts of issues, the the issue of causality comes up not as a response to errors, but as, a res- as an, um, how would you put it? as an integration it's that now all right we've reached causality we've reached or i mean we've reached volition we've reached choice and we want to integrate it with how does this fit with our view of causality that we formulated in metaphysics and i think the reason why um leonard lays it out following secondary choices that in effect it's the more relatable example. It's kind of like a bridge example because it's it's similar to other cause and effect relationships in that we can give a reason for secondary choices, right? But there's still a unique feature of them. The unique feature is those reasons are not deterministic. Rather, we choose the reasons that govern us. And so then that makes it much easier to grasp the unique causal nature of the primary choice, where it's not that um, you can't give a reason why a person chooses to think it's a causal primary, it's a starting point. And yet you're, the way you would think about it is, oh yeah, I can see why like um, it's we who choose the reasons to govern us, and then it's just we who determine whether or not we think at all, whether or not we're interested in reasons, whether or not we're concerned with reason or just going by emotion, going by feeling. And so I think I take it that that sort of what's going on with this chapter, but with this section, but it's just a very good exercise. And this will come up in some later chapters and uh, later sections as well to really be thinking about, okay, um, and, and this is assuming you're at least familiar with the issue. And, you know, if you were writing your own uh, OPAR, you would think to raise it. But when it's presented differently or in a different order in a different way um, than you would do yourself, I find it a very fruitful question to ask, like, well, why did he approach it the way he did? And why would I have approached it the way I approached it? And part of what I wanted to highlight here is this idea of, like, it's really important and valuable to hold objectivism in a non-polemical way, to hold it in a reality-oriented way. And of course, you, you, it's, it's also valuable later to contrast objectivism with other views and figure out, like, all right, well, what's plausible about other views and how does objectivism answer other views? But if your primary orientation is, okay, we start out with a whole bunch of errors and then we're trying to define objectivism as an answer to all of them, you're you're detaching yourself from reality and so 
uh, so much of the way that OPAR is organized is really interesting because it's so not polemical. It's so much focused on just this is how the philosophy would be organized if you're just organizing your first-handed thinking of, of a philosophy you formulated directly from reality. So some issues or some thoughts on higher level choices. So you can think about it this way. We have the choice to face reality. And then there's the, the, a series of choices that are basically an answer to how am I going to go about doing that? So this is really about implementing the choice to focus. Is I'm going to be aware, but I have to be aware of something. And so the question is, what is that something? How am I going to approach it? And so like an analogy, right, is you start the car, but then you have to figure out where to drive, how you're going to drive. Um, you have to actually, you know, go down the road and you're, you're implementing your initial choice to turn on the car and get it moving. And so that's really what we're dealing with with secondary choices. And it's important that in making the primary choice, like you're in, that entails secondary choices. You're making the choice to, uh, to be aware in order to implement that through secondary choices. And so, I mean, it's really helpful to just think about how this actually comes up in real life, right? Like you wake up, and, you know, if you're a person who's in focus, you're going to uh, get out of bed and think, all right, what's in the agenda? And so maybe it's, all right, I have that novel that's due. And so, okay, I'm going to go sit down at the computer. And then you have questions about, all right, am I going to start drafting that new chapter that I need to write? Am I going to kind of ease in and go back and reread what I did yesterday and kind of work with that first? And then you can contrast that to the person who kind of wakes up and they have some dim, you know, sense of, oh, there's a lot going on today. But, you know, they just kind of wander through the house, plop down in front of the TV for a little bit. And it's just sort of this vague, reactive uh, approach to their life. Or you could contrast that further with the person who, you know, the alarm goes off and they have that gnawing sense of, oh, my gosh, I'm behind on my deadline and I don't know if I can make it. And they want to push that out of awareness. They hit the snooze button, you know, try to try to just go back to sleep. It's that when you make that choice to focus, when you say what's up, you're committing yourself to, all right, I'm going to follow through. Like once I know what my agenda is, I'm going to go out and actually face that, execute it, think about how best to implement it. That's really what we're capturing with secondary choices. Now, the other thing I want to say about secondary choices is that they're, and I've, I've said this, but I wanted like triple underline is they're real choices that they're not, I, I've heard some objectivists literally, you know, say that, well, what we, all we really have is the choice to focus. And then after that, it's kind of like uh, every other choice is in effect automatic and that in, in order to do you know, something uh, other in order to like not go with that automatic sequence that follows the choice to focus, you'd have to go out of focus. And that I think is completely wrong. Um, There's definitely secondary choices that you would have to go out of focus in order to take. But there's many options that you face. So take the example I gave last time where you're out to dinner and you face a choice between chicken and beef, right? And so you have a choice about the, you have a real choice about the reason that's going to govern you. Like it might be, I'm going to choose based on my favorite dish, or I'm going to choose based on, I'm in the mood for something. I want to try something new. I want to, you know, go outside my uh, comfort zone, for instance. And both of those 
are, you know, potentially reasonable uh, choices. And, and you have to endorse them. Being in focus doesn't dictate one of those or the other. Now, there, again, there's some choices that it would cut off. So if your friend says, hey, like, let's have some shots and you have to go pick up your kid uh, after that meal, then obviously you'd have to go out of focus in order to do that. But um, for many cases, it's the what the real issue is, is like you have to endorse one of those. And... Th- If you recall the discussion where I gave this example last time, it was in the context of saying that um, when people treat that as kind of the primary case of thinking about free will, it becomes a real problem because either on the one hand, like, oh, I chose chicken because I can't afford the beef, that doesn't seem like a free will choice. That seems kind of determined by external factors. But if it was just, um, well, I arbitrarily chose one rather than the other. I didn't have a reason to choose the chicken rather than the beef. Well, then that seems crazy. It seems arbitrary, and that doesn't seem what we're trying to capture by free will, which is the idea of self-control. And the the difference here, the key why from the in the objectivist account, secondary choices aren't open to that kind of criticism is that you're in a different context. You're in the context of you've chosen to operate rationally. And so you're in control and you're thinking about what are my reasons for, uh, what's my basis going to be for selecting dinner, selecting between these alternatives. And it's totally legitimate at that point to say, well, like, look, the um, one on the one hand, uh, you know, beef is my favorite. On the other hand, um, like trying something new is something legitimate. And so, yeah, I'm just in the mood to spice up my life a little bit with a different kind of choice. And so, but it's, um, you've all, you're in the context of having made a fundamental choice to think and to be aware and to manage the functioning of your own consciousness. And then you're endorsing, you're choosing to endorse something that you said, yeah, that's a legitimate reason as your standard in that kind of secondary decision-making. But in the end, and this is the, this is the bottom line is that it's still a choice. It, it still involves the exertion of an endorsement saying, yes, I'm going with this that can't be reduced to like an automatic consequence of any prior choice. So I keep promising the validation is coming, but yes, the, as we'll see, free will is self-evident, but many, many people hold that it's actually in, in, uh, at odds with a scientific view of the world. And so, you know, it's, I think Sam Harris would refer to it as like, we're kind of like bio, uh, or determined by our biochemistry. We're puppets of our biomechanics or something like that. And, um, we have, you know, these motives and we have these intentions, but we have no clue where they came from. We're just in the grips of them. We have no idea of what the causes are. And so we're just kind of in the blind grips uh, of these motivations and intentions that are that come over us and capture us and direct us. And that if we had omniscience scientifically, we would be able to name the causes, but we wouldn't be able to control them. They're outside of our control. They're antecedent factors that mechanicalistically uh, determine us in the same way that, you know, a billiard ball striking another billiard ball is going to lead it in a definite direction and no other. And so I want to discuss three kinds of reasons that people offer for why they hold that a scientific view of the world is at odds with free will. And in particular, I want to talk about um, free will versus causality. I want to talk about the Libet experiments. And then I want to talk about the literature on kind of nature, nurture, and how these impact human behavior. 
let's start with causality. And the first thing to say is that if there were a conflict between volition and the law of causality, then volition gets uh, priority. And let me be clear about that. The fact of volition is self-evident. It's available to us directly through introspection. Now, the causality is a fact, and that is something that we grasp through perception, as we've talked about. But the law of causality, the actual formulation of it, that is something that is done at the conceptual level. So if there's a conflict between how we're formulating the law of causality and the fact of volition, then it's the formulation of the law of causality that has to go. Or another way you can think about it is that... Um, that man is volitional, that is a uh, metaphysically given fact. And the law of causality, the conceptual formulation of cause and effect, that is a man-made, um, that is a man-made fact, that is a man-made formulation. And so in any conflict, you have to revise the man-made, not throw out the metaphysically given. So that is our starting point. But from objectivism's perspective, there is no conflict between the law of causality properly formulated and the fact of volition. And, you know, we, we talked a little bit about that in my summary of what Leonard said. The, 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 the belief that there's a conflict starts with formulating causality in mechanistic material terms. It's, you know, a prior event necessitates a later event. It's a prior arrangement of affairs or constellation of affairs uh, has a billiard ball like effect mechanicalistically, um, mechanistically determining the next state of affairs. And yeah, if you think about causality that way, then certainly there's a conflict, but there's no reason to think about causality that way. And um, the, 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 in effect, what they're doing is they're taking causality to plot as it applies insofar as we know to the material realm and applying it to consciousness and there's no reason to do that there's nothing in philosophy that uh would imply that causality has to operate in the same way with consciousness and with the material world and so objectivism's view of causality as we've talked about it actually falls more in the Greek tradition where it's that what causality says is that entities have to act according to their nature. They can't act in contradiction to their nature. And so you can, the way in objectivism's view, yeah, that means that under the same circumstances, the same entity is going to act in the same way. But the way that's relevant here is that a human being in the same circumstances has to choose that it's uh it is part of our nature that we have to regulate our level of awareness and now you can't then say okay but no there's choice a and there's choice b because uh, and those are two different actions no the action is the choosing and if you tear that apart and try to make it well there's two different actions here there's choosing a and there's choosing b then you've wiped out even the meaning of choice because the meaning of choice is selecting between alternatives and so it's what we have to do given our nature is to choose and the outcome of that though is open to us and so from that perspective there's absolutely no conflict between causality and volition on the contrary volition is a type of causality it's that there's an agent who regulates who has the power to regulate his level of awareness and has to choose his level of awareness and so that's the right way to think about causality so the right way to think about the choice to focus or not is that it's a causal primary that you can't ask 
why did a person choose? It's that nothing came before that necessitated it, and it necessitates a bunch of effects after that. And so in this respect, you can think about the choice to think like other causal primaries, like the you know causal nature of the basic constituents of the universe, right? Because you know, for you can ask totally coherently, like, why does an atom act the way that it does and answer it in terms of, well, here's how more elementary particles uh, function. But once you get to the level of the basic constituents, there's so there's no answer to why do they act the way they do. That's a causal primary. That's a starting point that you can't get underneath and you can't explain. They just are the way they are and act the way they act. And so it's the same way with free wills that that your choice to focus or not is a causal primary and there's no way of getting underneath it except for saying the agent chose this versus chose that all right so word about the Lebet experiments and i'm going to simplify a little bit uh it doesn't change the essential issue but basically there's an experiment where um they hooked people up to an eeg to kind of rain, read brain activity and said all right watch this clock and at some you know arbitrary times um, extend your wrist and sometimes it was flick your finger and press a button and basically we want you to report the time at which you made the decision to do that and what they claimed to find was that there was when they looked at the brain activity people had actually made the decision before they reported making the decision before they were conscious of making the decision so the idea is that our perception of ourselves as choosing is happening after our brain chooses for us and therefore that's in contradiction to free will now there have been some excellent criticisms of this interpretation and i mean there's many many criticisms uh ed Locke in his book on free will goes through a bunch of them and uh there's a book i'm forgetting the name um yeah by alfred melee called uh free why science hasn't disproved free will that goes into great depth about this i'm just going to name a few things that i think are really certainly i found the most powerful so first in subsequent um studies labet found that even once the brain showed oh these people these people's brains have quote made a decision they have the ability to inhibit that decision and so i mean this by itself shows that all right well there's something going on that's not um it's not this brain state determining what they're going to do but even more than that and this is the second objection it is total speculation in fact i think arbitrary speculation that what they're seeing on these you know readings of the brain are quote decisions there there's no grounds for holding that but for example what that can be is this is what a brain looks like when it's getting ready to decide and then the third point i'll raise is that um when we're thinking about free will we're not thinking about like an arbitrary decision to flick your wrist or something like that what we're talking about is precisely to raise and lower your level of awareness and in particular the kinds of choices that are at question when we're thinking about free will are deliberation over time about um like the or using your mind to deliberate over time to think and to to like act with conscious control and so if you're having a study that's saying no we're not dealing with your level of awareness we're not dealing with you we're specifically saying act without any reason just flick your wrist arbitrarily at no time and to say that has any bearing on free will is just complete nonsense so 
whatever you want to say about the Thibet experiments, um, they have no bearing on the question of whether there is free will. And to the extent people think they have bearing, they don't uh, show anything like what they're claimed to show. So let's turn to uh, environmental and innate influences on action. And there's a whole um, psychological and social sciences literature that's trying to assess through things like twin studies um, how much of our behaviors, how much of our character are determined by nature versus nurture. And the the kind of claim is, look, we have all this evidence about all the influences of all these factors on our lives. And so, you know, how can you talk about free will in that kind of context? Now, the first thing to note, by the way, is so I have not looked at a lot of this literature. I'm like vaguely familiar with it. And, um, you know, there's a whole replication crisis in psychology and the social sciences. But even taking it at face value, there's a few things that we can say. And the first thing we can say is that if you actually look at the literature, like the people involved, part of what they, uh, part of the um, point they make is that when you're measuring different, you know, behavioral characteristics or personality traits, things like conscientiousness or, um, you know, the ability to, uh, or impulse control and things like that, that, you know, 40 to 60% of the variants can't be explained either by genetics or by the shared environment, like the, they're, you know, growing up in the same home. So now that could also be explained in part by what they call the unshared environment, which you can think about the broader, uh, society. But the, but the point is that the actual literature leaves open a lot of space for, free will to be a causal factor. And then there's even a question about what these behavioral traits are measuring. And um, it is totally possible that there are certain traits that fall under this that are, let's say, genetically determined. And so objectivism holds that human beings are born tabula rasa, but it's really important to understand what that means. What that means is not that we're born a total zero with no identity or anything like that. What it means is basically it's a rejection of innate ideas. It says that at birth, there's no content of consciousness. There's no ideas or values that these start with the uh, perception. And so that's really all that's being said by objectivism and that's being established philosophically. But then there's a question, well, what do you have at birth? And a lot of your identity uh, is is determined before you birth. I mean, uh, Ayn Rand, well, she has this passage where um, she compares human beings, like not to this empty mold, like, you know, piece of clay, but instead to a complex camera. And if you think about a camera, it has definite characteristics, potentials, functionality, and things. What it doesn't have is the content, the things that it's snapping pictures of. And so if you take something like, uh, you know, one of the traits would be, um, extroversion. It's like, it's totally believable to me that this could be completely determined for a person, but it's not an issue of their content. It's not an issue of their ideas or values being established before birth. Um, and so I, there's a real question then of, and a scientific question of establishing, all right, well, what is innate, you know, and, um, what's not, what's a product of free will. Now we'll get to the issue of environment, which I think objectivism is some really interesting things to say on, but there's nothing in a view of free will or in a view of tabula rasa that rules out the idea of, um, many things relevant to a person's personality 
being innate. And in fact, it's something that I mean, I think it's undeniable. We all have experienced, well, certainly like I have, you know, two young children and think there were radical differences from the time they were babies. And so, um, but it's not, but that has no bearing on whether or not their character, their ideas, their values are determined at birth. A few words on environment. So Ayn Rand definitely thought that your environment can have an impact on uh, how easy it is for you to think versus not think. And I mean, in particular, your whole culture that you could grow up in. And in fact, she thought there were some environments, if you think about like really vicious um, and thankfully rare abuse could really overwhelm uh, a child's ability even to develop. But setting that kind of thing aside, that yeah, a culture can have a major influence, your environment can have a major influence, but what it can't do is overwhelm or overcome your basic sovereignty over your mind, that even in a bad environment, a person has and preserves the ability to think, to question, to judge their surroundings. And I remember in college, uh, I had you know a number of friends, some of whom were smokers and some of whom weren't, and had a number of conversations where you'd hear this kind of explanation. So it's like, oh, I smoke because my parents smoked. Or it's, I, I don't smoke because my parents smoked. You know, I, I looked at them and said, yeah, that's not something that I want any part of. That's gross. That's bad for them. And so what you see is that the, the same environment, people have the ability to judge or not, to think or not, and they can come to different conclusions. And so, um, you know, objectivism's basic view is that what it, an environment can make things worse or better for you, easier or harder, but that it's only from the perspective of a person who doesn't choose to think that you can say they're determined by their environment, that there is a real sense in which a person who is characteristically drifting and evading is determined by their environment, but it's they chose that state that what you're really dealing with is not your environment determining you, it's rather conformity, uh, choosing to conform in a context of your environment is what determines you. And there's a really good analysis or kind of like case study that uh, Nathaniel Brandon gives in, I believe it's The Objectivist, um, where he's talking about the objectivist theory of free will and goes into this whole issue with, uh, of like, a child who is raised in a kind of crime-ridden neighborhood and becomes a criminal and how at every juncture it was failing to think, failing to judge that, you know, led him to where he was. And then at the end when he says, I can't help it, he really believes that. He really feels that. And yet it was precisely because he did not judge the people, the events around him. And Brandon even allows that like you could project somebody who in that kind of environment made some like crucial errors but was very conscientious but if you actually ask like are our jails filled with conscientious thinkers no they're not that um the way that Ankar Gante puts it in uh in his, one of his chapters in the Blackwell Companion to Ayn Rand is that if you want the best predictor of a person's future is not their environment but it's the primary, it's the characteristic primary choice that they've made throughout their lives. So that's a way objectivism's unique perspective to environment. That is, we don't deny its influence and the importance of its influence. 
but that it's not decisive. What's ultimately decisive, what ultimately controls and shapes a person's character and destiny is their choice to think or not. Finally, I want to say a quick word about compatibilism or what's sometimes called soft determinism. And so this is basically the idea that um, will there, determinism is right in, uh, in the sense that uh, when we do something, we couldn't have done otherwise, that antecedent factors cause that and we're not aware of them. But it's wrong to deny that we have free will, they'll say, because what free will is really capturing and the reason we have individual responsibility is it's distinguishing cases where you're acting from your own deliberation versus cases where you're coerced, either like you're like physically, you know, uh, a wind blows your car into another lane or where somebody points a gun at you and says, do this, that we have to make a distinction between those kinds of cases and when a person's acting from deliberation. But in the end, in all of those cases, it's not an individual's will that's shaping their choices. Rather, their choices are determined by outside factors or by rather by factors that are not within their control, that your choices are either determined by, you know, antecedent genetics or environment, um, or they're determined by somebody with a gun to your head. And that when we're talking about free will, um, there's no such phenomenon as I did X and I could have done Y. Now, my view of this is this is just really kind of rationalizing or trying to like save determinism from a pretty good attack, though not the most fundamental attack, um, which is that without free will, there's no moral responsibility. You can't praise people. You certainly can't blame them. And they're trying to say, yeah, no, we can throw out free will, but we can still guard this thing that seems pretty important to going on with life, which is personal responsibility. Um, and I don't actually regard it as a serious philosophic position, even though it's, you know, most, quote, sophisticated today, uh, people today um, probably fall in this category. But it's really just changing the definition of free will so that you can throw it out and still maintain or pretend to maintain individual responsibility where you really can't. Because at the end of the day, you're still putting somebody in jail, let's say, uh, for something that they had no control over. Okay, that's it for this video. Next time, we will wrap up our discussion of free will with uh, volition as axiomatic. Until then, make sure you like this video. Make sure you hit the bell so you don't miss any future videos. And as always, the best way to stay in contact is to go to donswriting.com and sign up for the newsletter. Talk soon.